morning service is a little bit unusual for us because we are going to install Tommy as an elder here at Providence Baptist. And the sermon that I'm about to deliver is actually just for him. It's what we formally call a charge, and it's delivered to someone entering the gospel ministry. And we do it publicly for two reasons. Number one, Tommy will know precisely what he is being called to do. That's primary. And number two, you, the church, will know what that calling is and have realistic expectations of him. You will know what the demands are that the Lord has put upon his life and how that concerns you. Too often in the modern church, people place requirements upon pastors that are not in the New Testament. In some places, pastors are asked to be CEOs, to have extensive financial knowledge, to be social media gurus, provide psychological counseling on the level of a PhD, or even be an expert in custodial skills to know how to polish the floors properly and repair the church building. And if they don't meet those demands, they are changed like football coaches because they don't produce perceived results. So it's good for a church to know what the New Testament demands from a pastor slash elder. And that's what we're attempting to do this morning. And Tommy, if I do my job right, what I say should scare the dickens out of you. <laughs> None of us called to ministry feel adequate for the task. And that's a good thing. In order to do this job, you'll be forced to rely upon the Holy Spirit. But it should not overwhelm you any more than when God called you to be the husband of Laura or the father of Mackenzie and Sam. Both of those jobs probably intimidated you from the outset. But you've met the challenge by God's good grace. And in the high calling that we'll speak of today, he will supply your every need, brother. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the under-shepherds that you have gifted us with to, to be able to look after our souls to feed us spiritual nourishment as it comes from your word. But Lord, most of all, we are grateful for the great shepherd of our souls. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that he is the head of the church. And that, Lord, while elders help lead and guide, all they are doing is guiding towards the Lord Jesus. And so, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us to Christ today. That in the midst of these words, as we, we talk about our dear brother Tommy, that Lord Christ would be exalted, and that Tommy would be revealed as his servant. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. Tommy, there's lots of advice that I would give you. I have someone who's served as an elder for over 25 years. I thought it'd be best to get the counsel of another elder who preceded all of us. So when we asked me to, to preach your charge, immediately the Spirit drew me to Paul's exhortation to the elders of Ephesus that's found in Acts chapter 20. If you will, please turn with me there now. This is found on page 929 of your Pew Bible. In Luke's account of the Acts of the Apostles, he records this section here in three different parts. You have the context, Paul's speech, and the response of the elders. The context, Paul's speech, and the response of the elders. Now, we're going to narrow in on the middle of these, not just because it has relevance for our event today, but because in Acts, this is the only speech delivered specifically to Christians recorded by Luke. Therefore, it's worthy of spending a little more time on Paul's message here. So let's set up the context. Paul is in the city of Miletus, which was a coastal city some 30 miles south of Ephesus. 
He's about to call the elders of Ephesus to come meet with him, and there's a reason that Paul must meet them in another town. We learn from Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, that Paul spent two years in the bustling port city of Ephesus. Scholars estimate that the population of Ephesus was somewhere between 100,000 and 150,000 during this period, making it one of the largest cities in the empire. And from those first few verses in chapter 19, we know that Paul proclaimed the gospel within the city to both the Jews and to the Gentiles. And he managed to anger both in the process. So much so that the Jews didn't want him in the synagogue and his theology of monotheism, of one God, was so effective that he caused a decline in the idol trade of the city. A man named Demetrius, who manufactured idols, organized a massive riot against Paul and his fellow Christians. And according to verses 29 through 34, we learn that this crowd filled the theater of the city. Now, I've been to the theater of Ephesus. It's by far one of the largest amphitheaters that I've ever seen short of Rome. It could seat 25,000 people. And as I climbed to the top of the steps and, and I looked out towards the Mediterranean, I could feel the, the palpable tension of having 25,000 hostile people rising against a small sect of Christians. It was wise of Paul to stay away from the city for a period and, and revisit some of his earlier churches planted in Macedonia and Greece. But as he was on his way to Jerusalem, he wanted to meet with his beloved pastors living in Ephesus one last time. So in chapter 20, verse 17, he called them to meet him in Miletus. Most likely the situation at Ephesus was still tenuous, and, and Paul wanted to avoid trouble for the Christians living in the city. It was safer to meet in this southern port. Now it would be beneficial to see who Paul was calling here. He called together the elders of the church. Note how he puts this, elders, plural, presbyteros in Greek, and church, singular meaning there were multiple elders serving the single church at Ephesus. And Paul uses this word elder synonymously with that of overseer or episkopos in Greek, or also translated as bishop in verse 28 of your text. In addition to this, Paul also uses the verb form of shepherding within the same verse in the phrase immediately after the word bishop in verse 28. The ESV translates this as care for the church of God, but the Greek word poinomanian means literally tending like sheep to the church. It's also a, a word that we could use shepherding the church of God, which is where we get our Latin word pastor from. So in this series of verses, we can surmise that pastor, elder, overseer, slash bishop are all the same office. Not three separate ones, but all synonymous words describing the same position. And at the church in Ephesus, there was a plurality of men serving alongside of one another in this role. It's the same practice that we have here at Providence. But Tommy, note that these three words now apply to you, brother. Elder, pastor, and overseer. Though if I were you, I would caution going around announcing yourself as the Bishop Tommy Hogue. <laughs> but this is who Paul has before him when he makes his speech. The men who are performing this function within the city of Ephesus. These words are for the church leadership. The speech that Luke records for us is amazing in that it contains so much that's also found in Paul's pastoral letters. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul's teaching appears to be consistent throughout his career. 
As we discover, Paul thinks that this is going to be the last time he's going to get the opportunity to speak to these saints. He has important knowledge he wants to impart. Now, I'm not going to get into the details of this message as if I were preaching through Acts. I want to give us sort of a high-level overview as it pertains to today. So Paul's message here can be broken down into three parts. Paul's apology, or what we might call his defense. Paul's plans, or Paul's prospects. And Paul's charge, or the commands to the elders. So we have Paul's apology, Paul's plans, and Paul's charge. So let's get into this here. Paul starts his speech by reminding them how he conducted himself while performing the ministry of the Lord Jesus. In Acts chapter 20, verse 18, he begins by stating, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. And the implication is clear as he states this. Paul is setting himself up as an example to his fellow elders. In doing so, it's not because he thinks highly of himself. That esteem goes to the Lord Jesus. And it's what uh, Paul strove to emulate here. Paul wrote to his uh, protege Timothy in 2 Timothy verses 1 through 13, Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. A consistent message from this apostle was, Follow me as I follow Christ. Jesus is our example. That's who we try to emulate. But what Paul is communicating here is not just that he strives to be like Christ, but in following Jesus, the situation he faced are normative for an elder. Verse 19 reveals that though he sought to serve the Jews and was humble, they oppressed Paul and gave him considerable hardship. Though he was honorable in his actions, he did not receive honor from those that he worked for. But that didn't prevent him from doing the work of Christ to both Jew and Gentile alike. He sums up this work in verse 21, testifying that repentance towards God and faith in Christ is needed. We preach faith in Christ and call to repentance. You can't have one without the other. A person must believe that Jesus died at the cross and personally paid the sin debt for the sinner to a holy God. Only that action alone can satisfy God's wrath. But they not only must believe that intellectually, their life must show conformity to Christ through repentance. As believers, we are called to be transformed by the power of the gospel. You cannot truly conform to Christ unless you believe in the gospel. Otherwise, that's legalism. And you truly have no faith in the gospel unless your life is exhibiting this transformation. And Tommy, that's going to be your high calling as well. No matter who walks through those doors, no matter who you encounter, you are to proclaim faith in Christ and repentance towards God. It doesn't matter how hostile they may become. You profess that every person must repent and place their faith in the Lord Jesus. We should not overlook how Paul did this in verse 19. You must be a humble servant to the Lord's people. It's not as though we sit in judgment over sinners. We humbly share the good news. That is what transforms us and our fellow sinners. After defending his conduct, despite the opposition he received, Paul next announces his prospects. And according to verse 22, he's being led by the Holy Spirit to return to Jerusalem. He doesn't know why, 
but he perceives he will be imprisoned and will undergo affliction. That's going to be affirmed as he gets closer to Jerusalem when he meets with Christians in Tyree in chapter 21, verse 4. They interpret this revelation of affliction through the Holy Spirit to be a reason that Paul should avoid Jerusalem. Agabus, the the prophet, thinks the same in chapter 21, verse 11. But this does not deter Paul. It's only confirmation that Paul must prepare for the hardships he will face once he reaches his destination, not avoid them. Just as we've been reading the Olivet Discourse, sometimes God calls his children to undergo tremendous tribulation. That does not make him any less merciful, but it demonstrates his power that he will be glorified even in the midst of persecution. Paul is one of those people that was saved by persecuting others. The very people that bind Paul when he gets to Jerusalem will be exactly like him when he persecuted Stephen and the other martyrs. Paul was a product of such persecution. It does not intimidate him at all. He states in verse 24, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That is Paul's motivation now. The glory of God. That God gets all of the credit for his grace. And based upon verse 25, he believes this persecution might lead to his death and that he may never see these men again. As his race concludes, he can proudly say he didn't shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God to his fellow believers. Now, there are many who think the whole counsel of God here means the Old and New Testament to to new believers. I can agree with that to an extent, that both are involved, but I would say that context suggests that Paul is referring to the glories and the sufferings of the gospel that a Christian may endure. The Christian life is glorious. It means freedom from sin and guilt, intimate fellowship with God as adopted children, resurrection of the dead, and eternal salvation. But the Christian life also means we embrace the fellowship of Christ's sufferings as we endure a sin-sick world. It means we call people not just to believe, but also to a repentance that follows belief, and some won't like either one, faith or repentance. And many times, the Lord will send you to the hard places to declare his gospel. Tommy, you must do this as well. We don't just share the good bits of the gospel, but we declare the whole counsel of God and that the gospel calls us to sacrifice our selfish desires for something greater and that there is a cost to following Jesus. I pray you too will identify with Paul in saying, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry I've received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Therefore, because he believes his race may be coming to an end, he has final instructions for them. And this is his charge to them. There are specific directions for how they are to continue to minister. Essentially, there are three instructions here. And Tommy, as a newly minted elder at Providence, this is specifically relevant to you. Here they are within the order that he gives them. Pay attention to yourself. Pay attention to the flock under your guidance. And desire spiritual treasure. Pay attention to the flock, or excuse me, pay attention to yourself, pay attention to the flock under your guidance and desire spiritual treasure. 
Tommy, the elders meticulously asked you some hard questions regarding your current beliefs, your conduct, and your character, and I know that some of those questions when we asked you were, were uncomfortable. But as you know, it allowed us to testify before this body that we have examined you and that you meet the biblical qualifications of being an elder. But even though you have met the criteria up to this point, that does not mean you cease in striving to maintain your character. You've not arrived yet. You are even testified to that in your testimony. You must constantly work on your own walk with Christ. You must, as Paul says here, pay attention to yourself first and foremost. This is not a selfish act. You are taking care of yourself first so that you may take care of others and not become disqualified. Like they tell you in the safety instructions in an airplane, put your own oxygen mask on first before assisting others. And Tommy, it is vital that you breathe in the gospel for yourself before you share it with others. It's vital that you make time to, to feed yourself in the word daily before you seek to feed it to others. It's vital that you take care of your bride, Laura, before you take care of the bride of Christ. Because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. And he knows there are few things that harm a church more than for its spiritual leaders to fall either doctrinally or morally. Few things create distrust towards leadership in the church than when one of these failings occur. To this day, I, I still deal with people's suspicions and mistrust that were residual effects of prior leaders be becoming prey of the enemy, despite the fact that myself and fellow elders acted in a biblical manner in dealing with those issues. Tommy, when elders sin in such a manner, it is devastating to a church. Paul warned Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. He said, persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Tommy, pay attention to yourself. I need to take a quick moment here and address the church body. Church, if you want a godly man like Tommy to lead you, then you need to allow him the time to pursue Christ for himself and his family first and foremost. If you ask church leadership across the board why most elders have fallen, the vast number one reason is due to pride and to burnout. The demands of needy people within a congregation become so great that the elder has no time to maintain his own walk with Christ. Or, when you start looking at it, too, he becomes susceptible to the enemy when the members love their elder and they demand all of his affection, and he's pleased by that, and such prestige can create an arrogance within the pastor that he thinks that he no longer needs to maintain those things or he's entitled to sin. If you want Tommy to be an effective leader for you, you pray for him. You make sure he's spending time in the Word personally, and you make sure he's looking after his own family. And then, I promise you, out of the overflow of Christ in his heart, he will love you so well, not just in his service to you, but also in the example that he sets in his own life. Paying attention to his own life allows him to obey the second charge that's here. Verse 28, pay attention, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. There's a lot to unpack in these last four clauses of the sentence. I'm only going to have time to move quickly through them. Tommy, you are to pay attention to all the flock. 
But by God's good grace, he qualifies this word all here. You're not responsible for every single Christian. That would be a task too enormous for any single pastor. But you are to be attentive to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer. God, the Holy Spirit, has assigned the care of this local body of believers at Providence Baptist to her overseers. And Tommy, your care extends to those within this body. He has made you an overseer of their souls. They are not your souls. They belong to Christ because they were purchased by his blood, as the last clause of the sentence communicates. But they are under your care now. As Paul writes elsewhere in Ephesians chapter 4, he tells us he gave some, he gave to be apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Tommy, you've been set apart by the Holy Spirit to shepherd and teach those whom he has placed under your care, to build them up into Christ. It is a high calling. It's a great calling to aspire to. When I married Lisa, I had the utmost respect for her father who raised two incredible daughters. I have even greater respect now that I have daughters of my own. But I considered it my highest honor that that he placed the care of his eldest daughter with a putz like me. It's not been a privilege that I have taken lightly over these 28 years. And in the same way, the Lord Jesus is entrusting his bride to a putz like you and me and all the other elders. You may feel insufficient for such things, but he is the one that chose you. Remember that. And you will now have to give account for all these souls as well. The writer of the Hebrews instructs all Christians, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And that is you, Tommy. You are keeping watch over the souls of Providence Baptist Church. As an aside to my fellow believers who have not joined a church, this may be a reason you've not experienced the full joy of the church. So in the New Testament, we see that one is to submit to the body of Christ, and we call this submission church membership. And if you refuse to submit, then then you are making pastoral oversight nearly impossible. And if providence is not your place of membership, then, then I commend you, I encourage you to seek such a place today. But Tommy, here is why these sheep are under our care. And this is what we are to pay attention to. How the world and false doctrines influence them. Both are wolves that that seek to devour and lead astray the Lord's sheep. Paul states here in verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years, that's the two years that Paul stayed among them, and then the letters that came the following year, for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. False idols and false gospels will be a constant attraction to the Lord's people. We saturate the sheep with the word, with the gospel, so that their desire is for Christ alone. This warning shows itself constantly in Paul's letters. Now, I'm going to read just a few of these cautions from the letters to Timothy because Timothy was a pastor at Ephesus. 
So when Paul wrote these, he was at the place that Paul was trying to address. 1 Timothy 1, 18 through 19. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. And by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. 1 Timothy 4, 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 16 through 17. Avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. But understand this that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Elders must be vigilant. For these wolves, we must be in a constant state of alert. Paul uses the same metaphor of being watchful for these things in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, Colossians 4, 2, and 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 6 and 10. Tommy, our job is to protect the sheep. And according to Paul, he does not leave us powerless to do so. This must be why, as we pay attention to ourselves and pay attention to the sheep, we must desire spiritual treasures overall. He concludes his speech saying here in verse 32, Now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Note the tools that you have at your disposal as you minister to the sheep. God himself and the word of his grace. You have the power of God and you have the gospel which, as Paul has stated elsewhere, is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. You must desire these things first and foremost. God and his word are the only things that will uphold you. Wealth will not. Not privilege, not prestige. Paul points this out in his own life. Verse 33, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities, to those who were with me. And all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. According to verse 30, some church leaders will take advantage of their position so that the sheep will follow them rather than Christ. I pity the man that covets the bride of Christ. But we desire Christ as our treasure, not his church. We serve her because we love the Lord Jesus more. Paul would write of this motivation elsewhere to the young pastor at Ephesus, Timothy, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. 
I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who with love is appearing. And Tommy, that must be your heart's desire. You serve Christ first and foremost because it is his church. You do not covet the church because it affirms you. You desire more of Jesus so that you can give more of him away. And that is why if you ever become a vocational minister of the gospel, such as Brian or Daniel or myself, your motivation can never be money. That will not sustain you. It can never be power nor prestige among the body. That will never carry you. It can never be just a job. You must love Christ so much that you can't help but give more and more of him away to others. Paul was apparently a prime example of this. We can see by the response of the elders whom he trained here. Verse 36. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they had accompanied him to the ship. Paul's example in both word and deed endeared him to these men. There was a, a sorrow among them that they might not get to see him again until heaven. They obviously loved the man. And I hope that the same is going to be said of you by those that you work with. But here's what I know about sheep. Some sheep will love their shepherd simply because he is their shepherd, and he is the one that feeds them daily. Some of those sheep might even express affection, like nuzzling the shepherd's leg or placing themselves always at his side. But not all sheep do. Some sheep you're constantly having to chase after because they keep wandering from the fold. Some sheep stubbornly refuse to move despite the shepherd's best efforts to, to move them from danger or, or to move them to better pastures. And some sheep will bite the hand that feeds them, especially when they are wounded. Sometimes a shepherd will receive love and loyalty from the sheep due to constant repetitive care of attending the sheep daily. But Tommy, that cannot be enough for you to motivate your consistent shepherding. Sometimes the sheep get lost despite your best efforts. Sometimes they do get eaten by the wolves. Sometimes they die on you. That includes even your best and favorite sheep. But we don't do it for them. As much as I love my job, the activity of it is not enough. Sometimes it just wears me out, but, but the reason that we do it is that there is another shepherd that is watching over us. He is watching all the time how we love his sheep. And Peter writes of this in his letter. He says to the elders there, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And here's the payoff. And when the chief shepherd appears, because of what you have done, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You do this for the Lord Jesus. 
You keep him first and foremost. You pay attention to yourself. You pay attention to the flock that is under your guidance, and you desire spiritual treasure in him first and foremost, and you will be a good elder, pastor, overseer. Tommy, I'm going to call you and Laura to come forward at this time, and we're going to pray over you. And the reason we're calling you is we are visibly showing that you are being set apart for this ministry. And as you come forward, Tommy, I'm going to get you to stand here in the center and, and hold Laura's hand. And uh, fellow elders, I'd like to ask you to come forward, and any ordained men, uh, please come forward. And elders, I'm going to ask you if you put your hands on Tommy, not Laura. Laura's not the one being set apart, but on Tommy or the gentleman in front of you. I hope that when you see this picture, you're seeing a man who is dedicating himself to you. What is so amazing to me as I, I look what's before me is how God has blessed us with an incredible abundance of resources of people to look after our souls. So I ask you that you join us as we pray for Tommy right now. Let's pray. Lord, first and foremost, we must thank you for Jesus Christ, your only son, who shows that he is the good shepherd. He is the one that stays with us even when thieves come to seek to steal and destroy. He never leaves the flock. And we are so grateful that he is going to be with us in every moment, particularly for those that serve in this role as under-shepherds. You will never leave Tommy nor forsake him. We pray, Lord, that, that you would work in his life in such a way that he would be drawn to you and love you more and more each and every day. We pray, Lord, that in the midst of this, that he would pay attention to his own soul first and foremost to make sure that he is acting in conformity with your word, to make sure that he is loving his, his wonderful wife, Laura, and his children in a way, Lord, that brings glory to you. And that, Lord, as he seeks you out personally, it becomes part of his overflow that he pays attention to the souls of this flock. We pray, Lord, that in the midst of it, that, that this flock would receive him lovingly and joyfully, that they would work in a way without groaning, Lord, so it would make his work here a joy. I, for one, pray that for myself, that I would do everything possible to help Tommy be able to succeed in his role, and as he admonishes me, that I wouldn't groan, but that, Lord, I would hear your voice as he calls to me. I pray also, Lord, that you would help him to lead us in desiring spiritual treasures first and foremost that he would always bear down in the gospel and that he would seek you and know that you are with him at all times, that those heavenly blessings are what he desires, Lord, and that he would not become interested in the things of this world, Lord, the things which fall away, moths and rust come to destroy, but that, Lord, he is working towards an eternal inheritance. 
And so, Lord, I pray that as we one day all gather before your throne, that, Lord, we would do so recognizing that it was your hand that drew us, that you used fellow members of the body of Christ, including elders, to be able to work in us to desire you more, and that, Lord, we would receive the gifts from each person here in a way, Lord, that would bring honor and glory to your Son, Christ, knowing that your Spirit is among us and working. We pray that you would be exalted in this. We pray it in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen.